politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Israel moves against Gaza and the fiasco in the house. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Matty Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brennan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Catholic Charities. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please... Consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, MBD, we've continued to hear just absolute horror stories uh, from Israel, from these uh, settlements that were attacked as uh, soldiers and members of the press are going through them. Just just unspeakable atrocities. We've had the, a bombing campaign now going on for days um, targeting Gaza and Israeli ground forces massing as we speak and a huge evacuation order. Um, Israel saying everyone needs to get out of the northern part of Gaza, about 1.1 million people. Hamas is saying, no, no, you, you can stay. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, awful. Um, you know, I, uh, I wrote a little piece in the corner this week noting that, like like a lot of other people in the United States, you know, my family's big enough now that even we were getting texts on Saturday morning, last Saturday morning, about people we know and love and getting messages that they were okay or that they were being called up. Um, and uh, just wild. What? <laughs> global world where even an Irish American somehow is tied into this. But, um, this is, you know, the, the two things you, you, you mentioned up top, they're directly related, right? Is that the, the very depravity of the attacks on Israel has so incensed the Israeli public that nothing less than the destruction of Hamas can possibly uh, satisfy their sense of justice. The destruction of Hamas requires, in a sense, you know, going block by block in Gaza and wiping out their resources and members of Hamas themselves. And this um, will start with this enormous military campaign, and this is absolutely massive for Israel, 360,000 already mustered. Um, <clears throat> but in fact, I, th I think the effort will go on for years, uh, be, even after this military campaign ends, whenever it does, um, Israel will be 
hunting people across the Middle East who were involved in these attacks and bringing them to justice. And it, it will be carried out after Bibi is gone. It'll be carried out by leaders of different Israeli parties um, in successive governments. This is, um, it's, 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 so, it's a, it's a, a massive event in the history of Israel. I mean, this is what Israel exists to prevent this from happening and to avenge it when it does. That's the whole reason right. the state exists. And so, right. So they, they, they fled pogroms and, and then, you know, something much, much worse in the Holocaust. And then you have what in effect, it was a massive pogrom carried out on Israeli territory. So would you MBD before I get to Maddie, would you be doing anything differently if you were the prime minister of Israel? Uh, no, I, I don't judge anything differently. I mean, I would, uh, I don't know if cutting off water and, uh, electricity to Gaza. I don't know the, the military utility or political utility of that. Um, it has a super high cost in international reputation because it's the first thing Israel's critics are citing to to say that uh, Israel is being indiscriminate in its response. So that's that's the only thing I can imagine examining. But I'm I'm not ready to second guess them in the first week. Um, you know, there, there's things other countries could be doing too to help the Palestinians if humanitarian wise. I mean, Egypt could. Egypt has walls just as high as Israel around Gaza mm -hmm. and could open up the crossing. Um, they haven't done so. Um, so no, there's nothing I would do differently yet. Um, and there's nothing I expect, you know, will be a, a big challenge. I mean, the United States also lost 27 of its citizens in these attacks. Um, yep. And the United States should provide Israel dip diplomatic cover and support um where appropriate some arms and intelligence and that's it and then hopefully they can wipe out hamas and prevent this from becoming a a wider regional war so maddie i think the coverage in the united states uh, of this uh, event and the beginning of the israeli military operation has, has actually been pretty good. But th this could be the beginning, you know, and a lot of people predicted it would just take a week or two, the beginning of kind of a turn in the tone of the coverage, this this evacuation order. What, um, how do you think about who who's, who's responsible if Palestinians are trapped in Gaza? Yeah, so obviously this the story unfolding just now is the story of these two million Palestinians stuck in Gaza. Uh, they've been given 24 hours to evacuate the north uh, by Israel. The UN's come out and said, that's impossible. Um, and they're very angry. They don't They don't want to leave. Uh, but you've raised the exact right qu qu question, which is whose responsibility is it? And the way I see it, the, the first responsibility, and this is pretty clear under international law, under the Geneva Convention, is that their government is responsible for them. This is Hamas. Hamas has told them to stay put, not because of their interests, not in their interests. I mean, we have a very good idea of Hamas's um, sense of responsibility for its people. Uh, we had a senior official on Russian TV saying that 
um, haha, Israel's been thinking we care about our people and are busy governing them. Really, we've been planning this attack. You know, the implication being that's not really, a, their well-being isn't really a priority for us. We've seen that in the way that they've used them as human shields. They're very happy for them to stay mm -hmm. there. Um, the Palestinians want to stay. That's very human, very understandable. That's their, their home. They want to stay. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they, Hamas is responsible. Um, arguably, their neighbour, Egypt, is responsible to a certain extent. Certainly the, the international community, the UN, the US, there is conversations happening, I think, between Israeli officials, US officials um, and Egypt in, in a way to, to open up that corridor and get, and get people out, especially uh, American citizens get, getting them out um, of Gaza. But I think the, the, the person who would be bottom of my list in terms of who's responsible is Israel. Israel is the... Is the, um, has, has been attacked. It, Gaza and Ham the Hamas government are their enemy in this situation. Um, I think that they are, you know, they are behaving with with respect for for human life. They're giving people these warnings. They're not, um, you know, they're not taking any any pleasure in in uh, attacking civilians. They want them to move. Um, they've made that clear, and I think that it's it's a bit unreasonable for the international community to sort of say oh, well, you need to make this your priority right now. I mean, their priority is Israel and the Israeli people. And Michael spoke about the destruction of Hamas being, uh, fulfilling a sense of justice. I think that is part of it. But there's also a very legitimate sense of safety here and national security for Israel. I mean, they've tried to coexist peacefully with Hamas. They've, they've made concessions. Um, and look where it's got them. I mean, if they're really serious about never again, and that's the promise they have to make to their people, then... They have to move ahead, move ahead with this um, with this ground invasion, and and that means getting civilians out of the way to the best the extent that they can. So, Charlie, a debate that's been unspooling since this attack is over the six billion dollars that was uh, un unfrozen and to be made available to Iran for just food and, and medicine, right? So, so no big deal. But uh, Republicans and and some Democrats immediately began focusing on this. And I think kind of the notion that Ar Iran was involved in this attack, which seems it, it, it was at some level, uh, solely because it saw the $6 billion coming down the, the pike is uh, highly simplistic. But the the notion that this, this is a huge benefit to the Iranian regime that has uh, moral fingerprints all over this uh, at attack and celebrated this attack is obviously true. And, and the White House immediately was on its back foot and began to argue, well, not one DNR, as John Kirby put it on Fox the other day, not one DNR from the $6 billion has actually been released, which raises the natural question, well, why are you going to release any of the DNRs, right? Take it back, refreeze it. There is um, uh, moves uh, afoot in Congress to force the administration to do it, and now it's, it's actually frozen the funds again. Yeah, and money's fungible. So often that sort of defense is silly, as we see in Gaza all the time. Money that is ostensibly given for the construction of water distillation plants or power plants or what you will amazingly ends up either being spent directly on munitions or being spent indirectly on munitions because when you give someone money to spend on something else, that frees up resources that they had. I, as I think I said long before this happened, 
have never really understood the obsession that we saw under Barack Obama and now under Joe Biden with doing deals with the Iranians and giving the Iranians money. I think it really does highlight a difference in ideological or political worldview between people who are on the right and people who are on the left. I think it's the same division that we have seen over what happened in Israel. That is to say that if you believe that there are bad actors in the world, and if you believe that there is such a thing as evil, and if you believe that human nature doesn't change, then you're going to be really skeptical that soft, friendly, pacifying attitude towards bad actors such as Israel, uh, sorry, such as Iran, and such as Hamas, are going to help. I mean, this is not a new fight. When did Obama first try to push through his Iran deal? 2014, 15? This has been a live fissure within our politics for years. The question of whether or not it is possible to placate or coexist with people who hate you and who want to see you wiped off the map. The interests of Iran and of Hamas do, in one sense, line up in that neither of them wants Israel to exist and neither of them wants Jews to exist. Now, you can have an argument over the strategic approach to how you prevent them from being able to affect that. But I just don't believe the argument that I've seen from lots of the apologists for Hamas, people who call themselves pro-Palestine, but somehow seem to be also defending the actions of Hamas. I don't understand why they think that if this land dispute, as they see it, or this wall, or this, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way of putting it, the uh, humiliation disappeared then the underlying problem would go away. I just don't believe that. I, I think there are serious religious and ideological and geopolitical forces in play here. So, of course, the United States should decline to give money to Iran. We know what Iran is. We know by whom Iran is run. We know with whom Iran is allied. And we know what Iran wants as its endgame. So yeah, maybe it is not the case that it was as simple as some have said. We give Iran $6 billion and suddenly Hamas is flying paragliders into Israel. But you would, out of an abundance of caution, presumably want to adjust your approach here and get yeah. a lot more <laughs> yeah. it, harsh in your, in your rhetoric and, and start carrying bigger sticks and fewer carrots. Yeah, they just seem in, incapable of it for, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, the, the regime is complicit in an attack that killed Americans and, and kidnapped Americans. What else do you need to know? MBD, exit question to you. How long do you think this uh, period we're in here of market international sympathy with Israel lasts? Either it's ending now, maybe it lasts another one or two weeks, lasts another month, or it's going to endure. Uh, one or two weeks, maybe. Um, I think before the state, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm going to put the marker in as far as like a statement 
that France and Germany sign on to, right? Like in the first hours, mm-hmm. France and Germany, along with the United States, notably not Canada, um, signed a statement uh, which was very strong uh, in condemning Hamas, in supporting Israel, uh, and even supporting Israel's right to uh, seek justice and recompense for these attacks. Um, and the, the countries that were trying to get, you know, little riders on these state on statements from the EU calling for no escalation or warning against, um, you know, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, you know, like Luxembourg or Ireland were immediately rebuffed in two weeks. I think Europe could, the could change. But uh, but then there's this wild card of the fact that European capitals are being filled with um Muslims who have immigrated into them chanting, you know, wildly violent slogans about the Jews in Israel. So I I don't know how that affects public opinion in Europe, but uh I don't know if Europe cows to that or resists it. We'll see. Maddie um, so I've been watching a lot of UK media coverage, um, and I think they've already they've already soured on Israel, and I suspect that the other countries will will do so as well in the, the next couple of weeks. Charlie, yeah, I don't expect it to last too long. In part because what Israel now has to do is going to be extremely difficult and extremely unpleasant. Mm-hmm. If Israel, <sighs> there is a reason that Israel has not done this before. Yeah. You have a really effective portion of the Israeli defense system in the permanent fixtures within uh, the security apparatus, Mossad, and their equivalent of the Navy SEALs. And then you have an awful lot of volunteers, up to 300,000 volunteers. Now, I'm in no way disparaging those people. They're extremely brave, and I wish them well. But many of them are normal citizens like me who have now been asked to go and put on fatigues and hold a rifle and they are going up against a government that is fanatical uh, that has a paramilitary wing that as we have seen is extremely violent and dangerous and that has absolutely no compunction about putting citizens civilians innocent people in the way and playing a propaganda game to which, unfortunately, the West is extremely susceptible. And I just cannot see a circumstance in which in two or three weeks' time, that propaganda game, as fueled by the difficult situation in which Israel finds itself, doesn't prevail and Western media starts yeah, to can turn. I, can I just jump, jump in real quick? Yeah. You know, people are already talking about indiscriminate bombing of Gaza, which I don't, I don't think there's any evidence that there's indiscriminate bombing going on. But there's, you know, people don't realize, I don't think people are remembering, Gaza indiscriminately fires rockets into Israel and has been doing so periodically for over a decade. And what is Israel's response? Doing it. And what is Israel's response? Israel's response was, well, dealing with this problem in the normal way would be dirty and would be difficult and would upset our allies, etc., so we're going to invent a technology iron dome and we're going to build bomb shelters throughout our country. And we're going to treat this like hail for the most part. 
like just part of the weather is putting up with rockets aimed at killing us randomly. No other country puts up with this shit. Excuse my mm-hmm. language. And I'm sorry, but like that is fueling the sense of righteous anger in Israel right now. It's like, yeah. we've been putting up with things no other country would put up with in from Hamas. And now it, it brought us to this. So it's the deal is over. Like, and, and our, our bowing to international pieties is over. We're going to protect ourselves. And yeah, no, that's, that's a great point and very well said. And on this evacuation order, if you're going on in on the ground and you're going house to house, which you presumably have to do if you really want to root out all these Hamas fighters, just urban fighting of that nature is as destructive and yeah. uh, tough as, as any form of combat. And you don't want, if you're a civilian, you don't want to be in the middle of it. You really don't want to be in the middle of it. So, you know, for, for innocent Palestinians, ha- having to leave, not knowing where you're going to go and leaving your home, that, that is, is a major uh, life event. Um, obviously, and is is uh, a tragedy. But as Maddie was pointing out, the ultimate cause of the tragedy is this Hamas atta- attack, Hamas's constant war on Israel, such that Israel finally, as as MBD so eloquently just put it, just decided we can't tolerate it anymore, and we got to go and do this. My answer to the exit question would be kind of the longer range of one or two weeks. I think it'll last longer than it usually does, but the inevitable forces will be at play here and international opinion will turn. I think Israel will care uh, much, much less uh, than it ever does. And the, the key would be, you know, where, where is the U.S. And, and does the U.S. really pressure them behind the scenes and, and make threats of cutting off aid and whatnot? And I, I think we, we will be, we'll be the last to uh, uh, go. We'll be the most uh, stalwart for whatever it's worth. So with that, let's pause and hear from our sponsor this episode. Catholic Charities, giving the gift of real estate is as easy as one, two, three, and now that donation can become the cornerstone of a Catholic Charities USA Donor Advised Fund, or DAF, transform lives and earn a tax deduction by donating real estate and creating a Catholic Charities DAF. The Catholic Charities DAF is a dedicated charitable account that gives you a simple, flexible, tax-efficient way to support your favorite charities, and you can use it to make an impact on the lives of people in need. When you generously give, your property, you support the Catholic Charities mission of helping those in need help themselves. Starting the process is easy. Begin by visiting catholiccharitiesusa.org. That's catholiccharitiesusa.org to connect with its knowledgeable staff members. They'll walk you through the process of opening a DAF today. So Maddie, another aspect of this has been the reactions in the United States. There have been a lot of reactions on college campus, and they've almost all been abysmal, with the exception of Ben Sass. We'll get to that in a, a minute. But you've seen these statements that are just morally bankrupt. You've seen these uh, protests. You know, there was one at University of Wisconsin the other day, basically calling for a genocidal uh, war <laughs> against Israel. And, and this is happening in places that were supposed to have been, over the course of about two decades now, been trained in the art of hypersensitivity and in avoiding microaggressions and being uh, particularly um, uh, mindful of the sensitivities of, of beleaguered and, um, minorities and the like. And all that just immediately is, is thrown out 
the window. It doesn't even occur to these people that they might be violating their own standards for whatever those standards are worth. Yeah, the standards were obviously always completely one-sided. Um, and I, I think there there will be a lot of well-meaning, good-faith liberals having a bit of a come-to-Jesus moment uh, right now with uh, with Black Lives Matter uh, revealing its true colours, um, you know, posting, the, I think it was the Chicago chapter, posted a, a picture of a Hamas paraglider um, with a Palestinian flag saying, I stand with Palestine. I mean, that is just pretty explicit support for terrorist attacks. And we've, we've seen this elsewhere as well. You know, the University of Madison, Wisconsin, I think students were chanting glory to the martyrs. Um, and I think our, our colleague, Zach Kessel, has, has collected a list of, of a dozen or so student groups across American campuses praising Hamas's terror attacks. Um, and it's, I mean, I, I've been shocked by it. Maybe that's naive, but it's it's just so explicit. Um, and these are oftentimes the same people who wield the charge Nazi whenever it's convenient. You know, we've we've been told that transphobes are equivalent to, to Nazis. We've been told that pretty mainstream conservative or Republican views are equivalent to Nazis. It's certainly been used a lot in the Trump era. Um, I have a piece coming out this weekend which collects a, a list of examples of, of the Nazi charge. And yet when it comes to something that actually is quite fitting in comparison, namely the, the slaughter of Jews, because they are Jews, um, you have all this doubling down on, on moral equivalency, excuse mate, making, or even going further than that, if you take um, somebody like Representative Rashida Tlaib, who has refused to condemn Hamas while displaying the Palestinian flag outside her door in, in Congress. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really big problem. We have it, of course, across uh, American campuses, but it seems to be deeper than that as well. I think she may have, Tlaib, worked herself up to condemning the attack. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I think I, I saw that headline. I might be mistaken, but it was very notable. I think it was a Fox reporter walking alongside her in, in the hallway, just like, you know, do you condemn the decapitation of babies? No answer. You know, do you ki- condemn yeah. kidnapping people? No answer. So uh, it, it took her a while. It took her long enough. Yes, yeah. it, took her, it took her long enough. So, so Charlie, on our own side of the aisle, we had Donald Trump in a rally doing the Donald Trump thing, saying Hezbollah, he has this uh, uh, tick, at least that's one way to describe it, of praising uh, malevolent actors around the world for, for being really smart. Um, you know, and, and some of them are obviously are smarter or clever or candy, but it's not really the first thing that you'd, you'd want a leading presidential candidate to say about a, a, a terror group right after this horrific terror attack. And then he, you know, because everything's personal for him, he condemned, I don't even know whether this is true, but condemned Netanyahu for not um, going along with the Soleimani uh, attack and even if it's true again is this is this first thing you want to mention some people say you know he's he's really chafed about the fact that the president of Israel said that that he had lost the the 2020 election which of course is the most grievous possible offense uh, in in his mind and then we also had uh, Tucker and Vivek doing a, a Twitter 
video and condemning the the attack, but then very quickly like, but we have a fentanyl crisis, which we do, but they're they're really not. These things are not directly related. And then going into this bizarre tangent that supposedly the um, just as bad as this is the the border war between Azerbaijan and Armenia, where the Christian Armenians are are getting uh, killed by Azerbaijan. And the only reason that this isn't like a, a massive story in the United States that, that everyone is obsessed with, you know, we, we're always so interested in, in border wars and the Caucasus, is the, the Azeri lobby has, uh, is, is so powerful and spends so much money in, in Washington, which is why we need a clean candidates, pure candidates like Vivek to, to come out and tell the truth. Apparently, th this, this conflict, which is so, so important, he has not said anything about it on, on social media or any, anywhere else that any, anyone can uh, determine. And then he cut it, you know, left hanging as well, you know, why we care about so, so much about Israel. It's the Israel lobby. Now, he didn't directly say that, uh, but he also said, you know, Nikki Haley is going to get wealthy with her support uh, for Israel. And the only reason that these uh, Uber hawks are Uber hawks is because it's a good living and gets them rich. So what do you, what do you make of uh, Trump and his epigone on this matter? I'd like to fold that into a broader observation about the habits of the right, of which I think that is emblematic. Mm -hmm. Conservatives and Republicans right now should be in a really strong position because the Democratic Party and its leadership are out of favor with the American public. On the issues, Republicans not only have an environment that suits them, but are trusted by voters in a way that they haven't been for quite a while. Republicans are more trusted on the economy than they have been since 1991. They're more trusted than the Democrats on crime, on the national debt, on foreign policy, on immigration, in some quarters on education. The one liability they have is abortion. Across the board, though, they should be sitting pretty. And this crisis in Israel should have been another circumstance in which Republicans, by default, could look good relative to the Democrats. Purely by being normal purely by not being associated with crazies on college campuses and in academia and in some institutions, purely by not being associated with Black Lives Matter, purely by not being associated with Hollywood actors. Republicans could have, as they did when Richard Nixon was winning 49 states and when Ronald Reagan was winning 49 states, purely by being normal. And Republicans once again seem unwilling to accept that charge. Now, Donald Trump is not indicative of where the Republican Party is on this. The institutional Republican Party and most of the conservative movement has indeed been normal here. It has been morally clear. It has called for the correct policies. It has set what happened in Israel in the right context. But... 
the most famous, most prominent, most public Republican in America right now, the guy who is likely to be the Republican nominee in 2024, is not on the same page. And the most famous, most followed Republican media figure right now, Tucker Carlson, is not on the same page. So Republicans are propping up Donald Trump, who is standing in front of cameras saying things like Hezbollah is smart, casting aspersions about Israel and its response, and perhaps even hinting that this isn't happening in the way that we're being told that it is happening. And once again, polluting the right's ability to, by being normal and sensible and grown up, take advantage of this. And at the same time, although this has not manifested itself when it comes to Israel, Republicans in the one federal institution they've been entrusted to run are showing that they can't govern, that they're not interested in being serious and have put Congress in a position of semi-paralysis. This is an increasingly distressing problem for those of us who actually care about policy and think that it matters who is in charge of that policy, both on the domestic stage and the international stage. There is no reason why a healthy political party should be indulging this from Trump. Anyone else. And it would be obvious that this was a problem. But with Trump, there's this circular logic that I wrote about yesterday, that because he's going to be the nominee, because he should be the nominee, because others don't want him to be the nominee, so he's likely to be the nominee, so he's going to be the nominee. Well, then we have to pretend that Trump didn't say it. How many issues... Do Republicans want to see themselves put in a good light relative to the crazy Democrats on? And then blow before they recognize that the only reason that the left remains in power with rampant inflation and increasing crime and a disaster on the border and spiraling debt and now a foreign policy crisis on which the Republican approach is the correct and normal one and I won't say the Democrats, because I think many of them have been good, but the left's approach has been the liability. How many of these do we want to squander in the name of a man who lost the last election and is likely to lose the next one too? So MBD, someone who got this right, our old friend Ben Sass, president at University of Florida. I'm not sure I really like the the, the practice now, every everyone needs to make a statement about every, everything that happens. Yeah. You know, we need to hear from university <laughs> presidents, but it's the world we live in. And if you're going to have a statement, th this is uh, moral clarity, just uh, absolutely spot on. This is this was one of strict sasses. I'm not saying he's not a great university president or or uh, uh, wasn't a fine senator, but this is his one of his core strengths. Is <laughs> uh, crystal clear statements about events of, of the day. He's a very talented writer uh, on top of everything else. Yeah, I think the. You know, the only thing that makes this more necessary for university presidents is the fact that there's going to be demonstrations on campus. And, you know, it is an mm -hmm. occasion to remind people that those demonstrations will be peaceful. There'll be there will be free speech at them, but also to reassure Jewish students they will be protected uh, because many of them are feeling especially vulnerable and many of them are justifiably feeling vulnerable because they're seeing that people in um, elite universities across the country are chanting 
slogans of violence and intimidation towards Israelis and, and presumably towards all Jews. Um, so I thought it was a great statement. I think, um, you know, I wanted to say something about the kind of inc the supposed incongruity of the ultra liberal lifestyle left partnering up with, uh, you know, terrorists, uh, intif yeah. <laughs> intifada ch ch chanting, um, supporters of Hamas, you know, at first it seems so incongruent because of course, well, of, in Israel, they have pride parades and in Gaza, they would throw, uh, homosexuals from roofs. But, um, on a, on a real level, I actually think there is, it makes total sense for this alliance to happen. Both, both the, it doesn't matter which group is the useful idiot of the other one. They're both dedicated to the end of the moral order of the West. And, mm -hmm. um, and they have surprising and distressing similarities. Both groups at the extreme edges falsely treat suicide as martyrdom. Uh, mm. Both groups, um, and, and they, they, they do that for a reason, right? Is because in a sense, they're you, you, negation of, of the, the moral order. You're of the, of the argument that trans, if you say X, Y, Z, the wrong thing about trans people, they're going to kill themselves. Right. Exactly. And, and it's this idea of we're going to use suicide as a weapon to terrify the tender hearted. And, um, and in fact, but it, it's of a piece, it's, it's, it's still the point of the suicide is to inflict damage and nastiness on the rest of the world. And they would rather, I mean, the, the people who are slaves of Eros and the people who are, would be slaves of Allah, you know, they don't want to live in a moral order where God grants you the burden of free will and your responsibility for it. And so they're both dedicated to snuffing out the self along with the civilization that surrounds it. And, um, you know, I, I give no quarter to this movement. I think it's total nihilism on the edges and, um, it makes perfect sense why it's allied together. So the next Can question I just to you say first. one thing in yep. defense mm -hmm. of SAS putting out the statement. I yep. agree with you that I don't like this practice per se, especially when, as seems to be the case almost everywhere else, universities feel compelled to put out statements, say that silence is violence. Yeah. So there's no option but to speak out on every single issue in American life, but on this one have remained quiet. But there was a specific reason why this statement was put out. It was a response to a vigil that was held at the University of Florida, which I learned this week has more Jewish students than any other college in the United States, that was interrupted at the end by someone fainting and caused a panic because 911 was called, the emergency services showed up, and it was disbanded before it was completed. And Sass was writing this letter to those people who had attended it and explaining his view. And he used the opportunity, yes, to, to put this out. I think that circumstance is a much more defensible one in, in which to issue a missive. Mm -hmm. Good point. I was not aware of that context. Exit question to you, Maddie Kearns. Have you been surprised by the noxious nature of almost all the response to this attack on college campuses, yes or no? Uh, yeah, I have been surprised. Um, I maybe shouldn't have been. I wasn't surprised at what happened in the UK and across Europe. We've had huge problems containing that type of uh, sentiment, as Douglas Murray has written about at great length. But I, I didn't expect it in quite that form um, 
in college campuses. Again, maybe naive of me, but I have been surprised. Abidip? Um, no, I haven't been surprised. I mean, uh, it's U.S. policy to grow this sentiment. We have had mass immigration from areas of the world where this, these sentiments are common. Those children are growing up, going to college, and influencing their peers. Uh, we will have nothing but more and more of it unless we reverse that process. Charlie? I've been surprised by how widespread it's been among students. I suppose I expected it from leadership and academics. I wasn't sure we would see as much of it from students who I've sometimes wondered uh, or thought were perhaps just following along, but evidently not. So yes, I have been surprised. I haven't been surprised. I just think there's been this massive effort to corrupt the, the minds of young people about this conflict and the whole microaggression industry was always, uh, it was never a neutral proposition. It was always uh, meant to be used as a weapon against one side. So of course they wouldn't apply their own standards to themselves. With that, just a couple notes about NR. One monthly issue I've talked about for a while here is, has gone to bed. It actually was posted digitally yesterday. So it's out for those of you who read the digital Issue if you're a subscriber and don't, it is hurtling. Maybe hurtling is too strong a word, but it's rumbling, slowly making its way to you through the the good offices of the U.S. Postal Service, and we hope to uh, you enjoy it. Next up is a digital weekly edition of the week, which uh, there'll be sign up information on the the corner if you want to get that email. But uh, that will be the idea is to to get. This front section of the magazine that is beloved among our readers in front of people actually once a week, which hasn't happened since the magazine was a weekly in 1957 or stopped being a weekly in 1957. And these items, if you want them, will be in your inbox at 8 a.m. on Friday mornings. And they are delightful, witty, informative, and incisive. So you want to you want to read this. And then finally, we hope You'll sign up if you haven't already for NR+. Plus. We need people to pay a little bit for our content if they value it as they should. So please join tens of thousands of your fellow National readers as a member of NR+, Plus if you haven't already. So, Charlie, you're just getting worked up on the topic of Trump and, and Tucker and where they are on, on Israel. So let's, let's keep going in that vein and turn our lens to the House Republican Caucus, if we must, as we must, because this is a podcast that current covers current affairs, even if they're extremely embarrassing. And this is just a total fiasco recording Friday morning. They're having another conference meeting today. But as we all know, McCarthy is ousted for no good reason by this idiot, Matt Gates and seven other fellow Republicans voting with all the Democrats to kick him out. And then you're like, okay, this is what I sort of thought would happen. You know, they'll have a, they'll have a conference meeting. Someone will win a majority of the conference. And, and after this idiotic spectacle, they'll, they'll go along and, and just elect another speaker because it would be too stupid not to. But I entirely underestimated our, our friends. Uh, Scalise wins a narrow victory. It was narrow, but it was a victory over Jim Jordan. You had... 
Kevin McCarthy supporters are either still into Kevin or upset at Scalise for not supporting Kevin as strongly enough at his moment of need. And then you had Jim Jordan supporters like, you look, he barely uh, beat our, our man. We're not going to vote for him on the floor. And then you have just other members who are just generally upset and out of sorts because this has been such a mess. So he's he's withdrawn. And now it's not clear what's going to happen. What do you make of it, Charlie? Like Seinfeld, this is a show about nothing. There's nothing at stake here. I am not insensible to the nature of politics. Politics does not always involve compromise. Sometimes one side wins, sometimes one side loses. And on occasion, it is necessary to play hardball. But the only purpose in playing hardball is to win. If you play hardball and you lose, you've achieved nothing, and you've probably upset a whole bunch of people in the process. Matt Gates has played hardball, and he has succeeded in his short-term objective, which is the removal of Kevin McCarthy from the Speaker's chair. But he's gained nothing from it. From time to time, we talk about political capital and its expenditure. Barack Obama spent a lot of political capital getting Obamacare through. But Obamacare is still on the books. It has fundamentally changed our healthcare system. The Republicans used a great deal of political capital changing the tax system and changing the makeup of the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court overturned Roe. There will be costs to that, but there is something on the other side of the ledger. There is nothing on the other side of the ledger in this circumstance. The GOP looks as if it is in disarray, which it is. The House lacks a speaker at an important moment. And for what? What conservative principle has been advanced? What new idea has been effectuated? What hated law or regulation has been nixed? There is nothing here. And ultimately... That is because Matt Gates and those who helped him along here are deluded. They just cannot grasp that Republicans won the House narrowly in 2022. They did not get a 40 or 50 seat majority. This is not an instance in which the center of gravity within the party is not being represented by its leadership, where you have a rogue speaker who is more interested in working with the other side or advancing his own ideology than he is representing his members. McCarthy was as good a speaker as you're going to get in a divided caucus in a country in which Democrats have the presidency and the Senate and Republicans only just have the House. There is no point saying, well, what about this, this and that? There's no point saying, I would prefer that person. I might as well say, well, I would like a private jet. I would like a private jet, but I can't afford one. It's not unjust or unfair for me to acknowledge that. So I find this infuriating, not because I am against conservatives winning, not because I am against playing hardball when it is necessary, not because I live in some kumbaya la-la land where I think that everything in politics should be peaceful and quiet and gentle and nice and friendly, but because this is pointless. And we're now seeing that in that the 
potential replacement now dropped out for McCarthy, endorsed by Matt Gates, was Steve Scalise, who was the number two, who is not much different than McCarthy in his politics or his links to the establishment. There's now talk of McCarthy coming back. Mm-hmm. No one can agree on who should be the replacement. We may end up with a a slightly more powerful temporary speaker in McHenry. Is that what Matt Gates wanted? And then what? You're not going to get the speaker that the more rambunctious side of the base wants. So why remove him in the first place? I am yet to see a good answer for this. Yeah, so MBD, at least there was like a tissue of an ideological case against McCarthy, supposedly his betrayal of his promises on spending and his having to go to get Democrats to uh, pass this continuing resolution. But he was, as Charlie points out, I mean, he was doing the best he he could. No one else was going to do any better. And it really puts in a different light the the more than a dozen votes it took to elect McCarthy in the first place. So, sort of the initial reaction of a lot of people, this, this is terrible, this is embarrassing, this is chaos. Then, th- then the reaction was, you know what, this wasn't so bad. And it's, it's not, it's, it's a good thing, actually. And, and inherently part of the legislative branch, you have these, these open debates. And then there was a honeymoonish period for, for McCarthy afterwards. So you're like, maybe, maybe this was, was good and served a purpose. But now I think in retrospect, you look back and that was just barely keeping the lid on this cauldron of dysfunction and chaos that Matt Gates Matt Gates ripped the lid off and here we are. Yeah, well, I mean the reason this isn't easy to solve is precisely because for Matt Gates it wasn't political. Right? If it's political, politicians are actually great at doing politics and doing business about okay, you really want this, I really want this, I don't have the votes, but here's where we can chop it chop up and uh, get a deal. That's easy. For Matt Gates, it was personal, right? Like, I mean, he had all these excuses about uh, either the spending, you know, ideological reasons about spending, about the dollar status in the world, about uh, McCarthy's betrayal of these promises, some of which at the time we knew were impossible to keep, especially the ones on spending, um, because Republicans don't control the Senate or the White House. So... Having done this, where it's where it's personal, it's been contagious. And the the situation you described to introduce the segment, Rich, is exactly right. Is that now everyone feels at at leisure to vent their personal beefs with each other in this conference, and so putting it back together is is turning out to be very difficult. And again, like I I can only see it coming together under McCarthy. If you could peel off some of the Gates rebels, Um, you know, he really did fit the conference better than anyone else conceivable that would have wanted the job. And, um, you know, this is the danger of having such a tiny minority, um, right? I mean, this like this is what happens, too, in other parliamentary systems is if the minority is this tiny with this much uh, diversity of political views in it, sometimes the governments fall apart. It's just in our system, we don't have the chance to elect a new Congress mm-hmm. that might be more more functional until the next scheduled election. Yeah, the thing that, that's kind of, the contrast that's uh, irksome and unfortunately 
telling is House Democrats had exactly the same kind of narrow majority, and Nancy Pelosi sure. had her moments. I, you know, on a couple of these Biden bills, like how is she going to keep it together because the progressives, it's not left enough for the progressives, but it's not moderate enough to to get get through Joe Manchin in the Senate. But it cohered just because they they don't they don't um, Democrats don't hate their party in the same way. Uh, a lot of Republicans do, or, or, or at least when you have a small majority, a decisive, potentially decisive segment of Republicans do. But Maddie, yeah. So I'll say that I didn't share your optimism that this would be resolved and we'd move on in the screwed again by my over optimism. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the the reason I didn't feel optimistic is because the. The, the the clowns such as Matt Gates are are running the show, and we've got these two forces, which Charlie talked about, the kind of force of chaos and spectacle versus a force of, of order and decorum, which I think you see somewhat in McHenry, who's who's you know almost boring enough that you think like, oh, that could work. He's he's at least in the in the short term, he's serving as the chair of the House Financial Committee uh, Services Committee. He's obviously um, worked on bipartisan deals, can get uh, various things done with the Democrats. But, of course, that's the exact kind of person that um, Matt Gates uh, is is never going to accept. So, yeah, you just have this, this vicious cycle. I was a bit amused by Nancy Mace um, uh, with her her scarlet yeah. letter. Her <laughs> large, I have to, I confess, I haven't, read the Scarlet Letter, but I, I'm pretty sure the person, the protagonist wearing the Scarlet Letter is, is doing so for adultery, and I'm not, I'm really not sure what that's got to do with her. I mean, maybe maybe it is applicable to her, I have no idea, none of my business, but I, I don't really see how it fits her, her political narrative. But in any case, it's just, you know, there's not a huge amount to say about it. It's just more of the same, very depressing and self-sabotaging. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not very hopeful. Yeah. So, so Nancy Mace. I don't know a lot about her, but it seems as though she's learned the lesson. Unfortunately, that in, in this this conference or this day and age in Republican politics, being ridiculous is is, is really a route to to fame and and influence. So she voted for against McCarthy, like for for no coherent reason I could discern. And now she's upset that that people are upset at her. So she's wearing this shirt. And then then she came out against Scalise, too, for a reason based on a a, a total smear of him from from long ago. But anyway, it's all very depressing. Charlie, recording here in the, the middle of October, Republicans will have a speaker by the end of the month. Yes or no? Yes. Well, it's emphatic. MBD. Uh, yes, there's just too much business that needs to get done. I mean, people want to pass aid, aid to Israel, funding for military industrial ramp up, funding. They need to pass a spending bill in a month or face government shutdown, and which would be Obviously blamed on the Republicans. If yeah. there's no, no vote in the House. <laughs> no, if you don't have a speaker, you can't blame it on anyone, MVD. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you That's know, the genius the, the, of this plan. <laughs> there's just there just there's a huge political imperative to get together, but I imagine one more week of of you know, people like Nancy Mace pretending to be uh, Emma Stone from Easy A. Whatever. <laughs> Was that a good movie? 
No, but like that's clearly what she's going <laughs> she's for. Inspired by yeah, <laughs> not not Hawthorne, Maddie. Um, I th- I'm going to say no. I think it might be they might leave it even later to sort of early November and in the meantime explore whether they can expand powers of um, of McHenry's powers in the meantime. But I I just I just don't see the way out of it. Um, and it, it's going to require somebody making a, a major concession, and I just don't really see who that person is. So does anyone have any idea who, who the speaker's going to be? McCarthy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I really don't know. It, it, it obviously is going to depend on exhaustion and embarrassment and just finally, look, we, we got to – we just got to vote for whoever gets the majority of votes in the conference, and everyone has to hold to that. I mean, it doesn't seem hard, but but now there's so much ill feeling around the conference, they just can't they can't do it. I I don't know when it's going to happen, but it will happen uh, eventually. I guess maybe think- I'll be overly optimistic again, Maddie, and say it's going to happen before the end of the month. But I really don't know. With that, do you think it could be like? Do you think it could be like a wild card, like maybe one of these more endangered guys, like? Maybe like a Mike Lawler, you know, someone who's kind of conservative, but conservative for his district, but um, would have an interest in not letting the conference go crazy. I don't, I don't know. know. It seemed, that would seem hard, but I don't know. I really, I really don't, just don't know anymore. MBD, let's hit a few other things before we go. You've been listening to the Rest is History podcast. Yeah, the Rest is History podcast is uh, hosted by two... English historians Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, and oh, they often Tom bring Holland, on. He's a giant. Yeah, Holland is great. So, and actually, it's a great time to listen right now because in the past few weeks, um, they did a series on British fascism, which was re- quite good. And right now, they're doing um, kind of a history of Baghdad, and Tom Holland is really great on these early centuries of Islam. Um, so does, he have, of, a, does he have a new book coming out? He, he had one that was fantastic a couple of years ago, Dominion, about the rise of Christianity. Does I he have a new one? If, I don't know if he has a new one coming out, but his his book on the rise of Islam, which was kind of a revisionist masterpiece, kind of showing, you know, demonstrating the thesis more that it, uh, Islam was more an empire looking for a religion than a religion looking for an empire. Um and um, he's just quite good. Um, and he, they're funny to listen to, and they bring on usually very good guests um, to, to do the expertise in the little bit of history that they don't know as well. So check it out. Maddie went to the Human Life Review dinner. I did, yeah. Jack Fowler, our former colleague and friend, uh, got together a table of, of youths, <laughs> I, I think. <laughs> that was his aim. Um and it was, yeah, it was just a really, really good event. Um, there was good speakers throughout sort of talking about the the current state of the pro-life movement and really just a kind of call to hope and, mm-hmm. and reason for hope because these are people who have dedicated their their whole lives' work um, to getting as far as we've got and recognize there's more to do. But um, I, I left the dinner feeling quite encouraged. Good. Charlie, speaking of encouraged, your son is hitting a thousand in T-ball. He is now. I should note that this is not a statistic that the T-ball league keeps itself. 
I have volunteered to create a little website with the stats on it, but I think there's only one person in Florida who would be interested in that, and that's me. But mm-hmm. I've just noticed, having been to his games, all, all but one, the other one I was told about by my wife, that he has every single time he's come up to bat in five games now, got on base. So you're sure that there are some errors mixed in there with the, with the hits? With T-ball? Yeah. <laughs> no. No, I think it's a little more straightforward than that. <laughs> he he's scoring runs. He's got a bunch of RBIs, and he's been on base every time. So awesome. I'm uh, I'm proud of him. I keep explaining to me he's batting a thousand, and he looks at me in the same way as people look at me when I suggest that we keep these stats for mm-hmm. posterity. So I have been reading this book called The Allure of Battle by a guy named Cathal. Not sure whether I'm saying his. First name correctly, Nolan came out several years ago. It is a, a really a fantastic military history, and we have a devoted listener named Alec who, v- who very often picks up books I mention, even though they're they're not really uh, meant to be recommendations for for people to go out and read them. But Alex, actually, this is one. It's it's uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a brick. Uh, as well, like some others, but is really a, a fantastic military history that has an agenda, and the agenda is to argue that everyone overestimates the importance of any given battle. And you know, we think of Hannibal at Cannae or Henry V at Agincourt, and uh, the thing is, they lost the wars because very often wars are not settled by a single battle. Sometimes battles are decisive, but but very often in a way we neglect because battles are so um, dramatic and, and involve, you know, big, big uh, military figures that we, we neglect that that wars are decided in contests of attrition that involve uh, industrial strength and willpower. And that's not quite as romantic, but it's very often the truth. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is Charlie's piece in the new issue about uh, watching American football with his English dad. Um, Charlie is a uh, great uh, writer about football precisely because he is an improbable one. Um, so check it out. Many. Uh, my pick is Michael's piece, Things I Couldn't Conserve, which is a wonderfully wistful piece um, about the, the things that Michael wishes that um, he could pass to his children, things he experienced as a child that he wishes his kids uh, could experience but won't. So it's it's very Celtic and in, in it's quite sad. But <laughs> Celtic and sad is what they'll put on Michael's headstone. <laughs> Charlie. I'm going to pick a Michael post as well. This was about what proportionality in war actually means. And I'm happy to admit, I did not know. So the educational aspect of Michael's post was squarely aimed at me, and it was extremely gratefully received. Michael goes through what this means in practice and the history of it and some examples, and I now understand what the proportionality theory is in the context of conflict. So I'm going to go, as I did earlier in the week, with the Noah Rothman uh, post. This case, the refreezing of Iran, $6 billion, exposes the White House's nonsense where he dissects 
how just the White House's arguments about this made no sense all along. And we are we are in a Noah Rothman moment, moment my friends, because he is uh, uh, he he knows this uh, conflict and writes with great moral clarity about it. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or count of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Catholic Charities. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.